I was just going to take another look at this film on the McClellan Committee. Well, you know who's on it, don't you? Goldwater, McClellan, Curtis, Munt. That sounds like a reactionary convention. Say, could that be the same committee that Senator McNamara quit because he thought it was biased? That's the one. What are they up to? Well, it's not hard to figure. Try to bust the unions. Well, I think they figure that if they can convince the public that all unions are corrupt and run by gangsters, that they can get just about any kind of law they want. to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we do deep dives in histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. We talk about the bad people who secretly make their own history and the history that made them. I'm your co-host, Isaac. I'm your co-host, Peter, and I'd just like to say to everyone, uh, you're welcome. Yep. Uh, because we, uh, by discussing Jimmy Hoffa and the potential power of the Teamsters to shut mm-hmm. down the American economy single-handedly, averted the strike and brought brought ups to the table scared the shit out of them yeah they uh they held on negotiations for months and then oh. uh boston's own sean o'brien that's right local boy got him really oh, yeah. also obviously rank and file teamsters tdu yes fred zuckerman in the mm-hmm. secretary position but you know good job everybody you yeah, got well but picking up where we left off on teamsters from Decades and decades ago, mm-hmm. Peter, when we left off, we had talked about how with the successes of organizing people like long-haul truck drivers, quote-unquote over-the-road truckers, mm-hmm. warehouse workers, and just all kinds of categories of workers with the help of Farrell Dobbs mm-hmm. and Jimmy Hoffa in Detroit, mm-hmm. that there was a kind of closing legal web around what organizers were able to do with the Taft-Hartley Act. They couldn't do the cool nuclear thing mm-hmm. of shutting down the suppliers to a business that is not agreeing with the union. Mm-hmm. You have you're forced to work. You're forced to work for you know like like the way. Well, we'll get into that later. The way that they imply that any inconvenience for a businessman is tantamount to slavery, but yeah, and also that it in, impairs the right to work. It's funny when I look through like old. Uh, editions of the Trotskyist newspaper, The Militant, they they literally always call it the right to scab. Yeah, yeah. Sick. Well, in this episode, we're going to pick up here in our in our storyline with the on the Teamsters with Hoffa as kind of the driving force pushing against the limits of the law. But crucially, this is also about how these forces drive him into the presidency of the Teamsters. He's Hoffa, even though he's a big organizer, he doesn't automatically become president. That only happens in 1957 with a lot of controversy, including the expulsion of the Teamsters from the AFL-CIO. But rather than go through every single play-by-play with this, I thought we would talk about this real back-and-forth escalation of tactics Mm -hmm. between the Teamsters on one hand and government and business on the other hand, 
and also really take a survey of this massive union that the teams have built because it's during this time that the teams have become the largest union in the United States and arguably the largest union in the you know non-Soviet bloc world not the largest union where they're not like congratulations you have joined yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but certainly the largest union on the North American continent mm -hmm. so what was going on like so we we get to this point with Taft Hartley yeah where which is a real watershed and not a good one in American labor history the methods that the Teamsters used, including secondary strikes, secondary boycotts, the nuclear option, like you were talking about, that stuff becomes legally prohibited. Yeah. And and what that means isn't just you'll get a fine like employers get when they fire people during organizing drives. It's that you'll get an injunction. Mm -hmm. Your organizers will be arrested. And you, if you're the head of the union that organized it as a ringleader, will be arrested mm -hmm. for conspiracy to violate Taft-Hartley Act. And every single day that you're doing a secondary boycott strike or a strike that's been declared illegal for contempt of court, your assets out of your union treasury will be seized. Mm. So union organizers arrested, your striking workers potentially arrested for trespass and things like that. Your union treasury, that's your strike fund, that's mm. going to be seized by the government mm. to pay off these fines. It's it's devastating. It's the really it's the hard arm of the law mm. coming into play. Stuff is no joke. So the Teamsters are running up against this kind of resistance, and they find interesting and innovative little ways to try to get around Taft-Hartley. And I know we're skipping a little bit ahead in our notes, mm -hmm. but I think it's just worth saying that the way that they managed to get around this particular part of Taft-Hartley with the secondary boycott is an innovation called hot cargo. Mm -hmm. And... Hoffa and other organizers, and I imagine like a good amount of labor lawyers, realized that even though they couldn't just declare a strike, mm -hmm. a secondary strike against an employer, that they could use this individual tactic and write into each contract and they negotiated an agreement called a hot cargo clause mm -hmm. saying that the employer will not penalize an individual worker for, you know, exercising their individual right of mm -hmm. conscience to not carry scab goods to a, a strike workplace. In other words, they, they're, you know, individually showing solidarity, not crossing the picket line to say, deliver like frozen goods to a Kroger that is on strike, mm -hmm. right? And that allows them to do a secondary boycott without doing a secondary boycott. Because they're like, we're not saying that we're cutting off this Kroger's. We're just saying, you know, our workers have told us that they're not hauling those goods to that Kroger's. Yeah. They, they, and you can't fire them or penalize them for doing that. Yeah. It's, you know, I actually knew a guy in my grad program who wrote about the rock. He mostly did it in the religious context involving Catholicism, but the rise of arguments on the basis of conscience mm -hmm. uh, in American life. And there was always some of that uh, to do with religious freedom, things like how even in the Constitution it says you don't have to swear an oath because to gain office, you can just promise, because that was for groups like the Quakers, who considered oath swearing to be blasphemous, but and it goes into conscientious objection things like that. But yeah, this idea that you had you had a right to your conscience is this it gains prominence in this time in a few different parts of American life. It starts out as being this anti-totalitarian thing, right? And what makes American 
liberal capitalism different spiritually from fascism, communism, socialism, and so on, was that people had the right to follow their conscience. And that wound up kind of biting the American Cold War project in the ass in some ways, because all of a sudden you started having people saying, oh, well, my conscience says, you know, the kind of people that they would normally regard as cannon fodder, right? Good Catholics yeah. saying, oh, well, my conscience says I shouldn't go over to Vietnam and kill people. Right. Uh, and now I guess my conscience says I shouldn't deliver these frozen goods to Kroger. Yeah, <laughs> or or my my conscience says like the Berrigan brothers, we have to go in and yeah, parts of the yes. process, right? Yeah. Um, shout out, shout out to P. Stephen Chaika, who uh, did that work on conscience. So, as you might guess, this kind of radical tactics and conti basically continuing with the power of the secondary boycott, because this is particularly powerful when you're talking about trucking. This is running up against the power in Congress and the federal government of Southern ass Jim Crow congressmen mm -hmm. and uh, a really powerful post-war, which we talked about on our, some of our Rosenberg episodes, anti-labor wave. This wave of conservative sentiment after FDR died and during the Wilson administration, early Eisenhower administration, really was a kind of a red scare that where the rubber meets the road for these people who might talk about like uh, communists under the bed and so on like that is where their real priorities are, which yeah. is constraining the power of workers to stop the economy yes. and meet their demands. Yeah. So when Taft-Hartley is passed and you still have these organizing drives going on with Teamsters and others, uh, kind of finding ways around the secondary boycott provision, that doesn't say, you know, the, the anti-labor interests of people like the National Association of Manufacturers and the Chambers of Commerce that are in every town in the country and have unified interests in Washington. And they lobby for and get the convening of something called the McClellan Committee, mm. which I falsely wrote as the McClellan Committee, <laughs> Civil War General. Yeah. Equally traitorous. Yes. Um, also bad. Now, most people know the McClellan Committee as actually being this kind of like buttoned up blue ribbon Senate committee about union corruption. Mm -hmm. And they especially know them because the, the face of the McClellan Committee is chief counsel at that time, 29 years old, Bobby Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Is that bit in The Sopranos where, uh, you know, juniors talk about how much he loves JFK and Tony's like, well, what about Hoffa, the Teamsters? It's like, oh, that was a brother. That was that was Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, on, on this thing with the McClellan Committee, I've only started reading Victor Navasky's Kennedy Justice. It does seem like it was a it was a bit of a gap between the two brothers, in which Bobby was much harder. And frankly, you know, the the people's history of violence assessment of this this is Bobby at his highest level of sap. Yeah, yeah, absolute. Sap. Mm, yeah, we're not. Yes. We don't. We don't stand this version of Bobby. Lowest level of hard boiled. Yeah. So the McClellan committee, like any Senate committee, is supposed to be a committee to launch inquiries into whether certain legislation should be passed and what legislation should be effective. Which sounds really, really bland. The McClellan committee in this case is convened to bring up a bunch of labor leaders mm -hmm. that they. Are, that are corrupt, ask them a lot of questions that they hope will, they'll take the Fifth Amendment on, or ask them about a bunch of, say, uh, violent things or corruption questions, so as to show that there's a real need to pass 
certain legislation. So like, then it's what legislation should be passed as right. a result of questioning these people. Yeah, that's generally the the notional reason behind congressional investigations, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because Congress is the legislative branch. It's not just supposed to be like having people show up on TV and, right, say and yell at them. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, a massive series of kind of prosecutions and investigations all over the country, primarily about union corruption, of which the Teamsters had a lot. And we explained why in our second episode. It's this decentralized, like kind of shambling empire of union where you have some locals that are totally controlled by gangsters. You have some locals that could give less shit with their members thinking. You have some locals that are radically democratic. Mm -hmm. Some locals where members are very active and mm -hmm. more or less controls and so on. Probably yeah. the greatest, to, to bring this back to me, yeah. probably the, <laughs> the, the, the bigger, the most, the line in my writings has ever received the most compliments is when I compared the American power structure as depict in the in the mid 20th century as depicted by our Michigan uncle Jimmy yep. uh, when I compared his depiction of the American power structure to something like the Holy Roman Empire right this welter of different fiefdoms run by different mafia families don't, and, don't forget bishoprics right bishoprics you know corporate tycoons religious fanatics politicians uh you know groups like the Klan the whole middle, much of the country, especially the middle of it, is just this welter of these competing and, and sometimes cooperating, but mostly squabbling little fiefdoms run by like personal petty domination. And I see, you know, and, and uh, because uh, most of the people who like my writing are nerds, a lot of people are like, oh, that's cool. That's a good line. Thanks, Peter. I see that you compare here the Teamster Empire to the Holy Roman Empire yeah. in a somewhat similar way in terms of how we're used to. So the American states, obviously, they're pretty different. They range in population from like Wyoming with 500,000, California with what, 30 million or however much it is. Yeah. Um, and they range in culture and they range in geography or whatever. But they all have the same basic like rights and governing structure. It's even in the Constitution that it says that all the states need to have, I forget what the line is, but basically Republican institutions. Yeah. Like you can't have a state that is a monarchy. That's not allowed. But the Holy Roman Empire included all kinds of different, you know, wildly varying governance systems, though mostly aristocratic of some kind, right? Run by a king or a duke or a bishop or yeah, something. Sensibly, like a teamster local would have like a similar constitution. But in reality, I think yeah. you'll we'll see with comparing two different nominally pro-Hoffa locals mm -hmm. that they can be run very differently. I, I mean, the thing that really incensed a lot of these people about Hoffa, though, wasn't his particular corruption as such, or even, you know, as Kennedy charges tolerance for corruption, mm -hmm. it's the fact that he was taking this kind of shambling empire and making it very powerful, mm -hmm. which, you know, meant basically beating down some corrupt locals and raising the power of others and wheeling and dealing with all of them to the benefit of the center, meaning him. Yeah. Or I should say like the, the central power being him. But I, I think it'd be helpful to take a little bit of a digression on, on union corruption. So there's really kind of two ways of, two ways of being concerned about union corruption. 
And the McClellan Committee is really all concerned about one particular kind. Uh, there's one that I think most of our listeners be concerned about, and it's the kind that the workers are in within the union are understandably concerned about. And that yeah. kind of corruption is the kind that affects their like interests, rights, right. aspirations, their ability um, to govern their own union, and to mobilize it to gain yeah. stuff for their members. So, like workers are understandably concerned about like class collaboration. So the union leader cutting a separate deal, like a sweetheart deal saying, you know, rather than the $20 an hour rate that we negotiated for our wages, you know, as a union, mm -hmm. why don't you, you, this particular employer, this particular business, you can do it for 15, $5 less because we understand you have a specific problem and I, as the union leader, I can carve out an exception for you. Mm -hmm. They're concerned about that. And oftentimes that kind of a sweetheart deal comes with a payment to the union boss. Right. So it's a payment for labor peace, as they call it. Yeah. Um, they're also obviously concerned about money that was set aside for like strike funds, the, the funds that keep you in your house and food on your table when you yeah. go on strike mm -hmm. in solidarity being just stolen away oh, yeah. or used for like a political campaign mm -hmm. or, you know, sent to a union boss's salary rather yeah. than kept in the union treasury or used for the members like health, safety, welfare. Yeah. And that's that stuff is like some of the is, is, we're against that on this podcast. 100%. We think that's some of the sketchiest and skeeziest shit you could possibly do. And uh, we recommend very hard boiled action against that. Yeah. And obviously the chief weapon against that is union democracy. Yeah. Being able to be like, we we know you stole from the union treasury or you cut this this deal for $15 an hour uh, when it should have been 20, like the rate that every other trucking company negotiates, you're out, you're out on your ass. Yeah. Or you're, you're going back into the truck, uh, a fate that a lot of union leaders would like to avoid. Yeah. The um, truck is hard. The office is less hard. There's a very different second kind of corruption that's the kind that bosses are more concerned about. And congressional committees. And congressional committees that fund are funded by the same bosses. Yeah. And that is like what they see as like coercion or monopoly mm -hmm. or a general theme of what one can call like union extortion, mm -hmm. right? That's being forced, say, by the threat of strikes or violence to divert more of their company's money mm -hmm. from profit over to the workers in the form of the union. Okay. And so these boss-minded concerns are particularly about like whether there was a lot of violence on a strike, say violence against people coming to scab. Mm -hmm. It's a violation of the non-aggression principle. No, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they, they, they love non-aggression in the U.S. Congress. <laughs> and obviously, if you're concerned about force being used to extort wage gains out of you or extort, quote unquote, health benefits out of you, then you're especially concerned about the kind of person the union might hire as an organizer. Mm -hmm. Whether they're like two-time felon, strong-arm guy, ex-boxer who can definitely hold a picket line is very intimidating. Mm -hmm or whether they're a fanatical red right. communist, because those guys are going to put body on the line, yeah. limb on the line, and they're not going to quit. Yeah, You also can't pay them off so easily. Right. This kind of extortion, the, the legislation around it started really with the Hobbes Act in 1943, 
not to go into too much of a tangent about that, but any use of, say, intimidation or what have you to extort gains and wages and, and hours and benefits for your workers is thought to be racketeering. Mm -hmm. Because that's put as an equivalent thing to, say, a union boss meeting up with, say, head of Kroger and being like, if you pay me $500, you're not going to go on strike. That personal corruption is equivocated with the use of the union's power to get gain. Yeah. So one is basically just like one is essentially bourgeois crime. Yeah. Like the seizing of you know, seizing, uh, taking money out of the hands of workers to feather your own nest. And the other is trying to prevent a different group from seizing money, seizing seizing the wealth of the working, generated by the working class and putting it, feathering it their own nest and calling it profit, right. i.e. class struggle. Yeah. Right. So notionally, they're opposed to both, but we'll see which kind, right, the bourgeois boodling or the class struggle they have more of a real issue. And, and obviously the thing is, is if the more you constrain the ability of workers to kind of exercise that intimidating force, their numbers and tactics and so on, mm -hmm. the less they can actually do at all. So the McClellan Committee was named, of course, for its chair, John L. McClellan of Arkansas, um, who became a good friend with Bobby Kennedy during this time. He, it should be noted, is not just an anti-union guy, I mean vociferous anti-union guy. He was also an extreme segregationist who signed on to the Southern Manifesto. Oh, yeah. Uh, opposed Eisenhower using troops in mm -hmm. Little Rock, Arkansas, when during school integration, mm -hmm. and on and on. He believed in separate and very, very, very unequal. And obviously, he saw this kind of oncoming wave, particularly with the Teamsters, because they were organizing so much in the South, as being a threat to the Southern racially segregated low wage order. Mm. So it's really not surprising at all that he goes pedal to the metal on trying to hit the Teamsters in particular mm -hmm. through Bobby Kennedy. Mm. So with Bobby Kennedy as counsel, they kind of weaponize these issues of corruption towards the end of constraining labor power. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next episode. The McClellan Committee actually does, when they pass the Landry Griffin Act in 1959, it does actually contain a lot of like useful, good provisions about union democracy. Yes. Um, Hoffa gets elected under a Landry right. Griffin Act. Yeah. Um, supervised election, it's worth noting. And also it's used to get on, on other labor unions that had been radically undemocratic, like United Mine Workers under Tony Boyle, and on and on. But it also contains a big provision that's meant to get rid of these kind of weaseling out of secondary boycotts in the form mm -hmm. of hot cargo. So, so the provisions that come out of the McClellan investigations put an end to the hot cargo conscience gambit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just really just shooting that yeah all right so but we're still in like um, in the 1950s for the teamsters and really for the teamsters almost alone still in like a white hot organizing mm -hmm. age primarily because of people like hoffa in headquarters who are driving this through there's Awful still lot. enough momentum even with all this yeah if not more so mm. so I, in particular with the mcclellan committee I, I love this uh particular movie that was put out by 
local mm-hmm. 688 in St. Louis, the Terrell Gibbons, the socialists, yeah, local, were <laughs> is the most ham-fisted movie that's mm-hmm. ever been made about congressional committee. <laughs> and it starts out with, you know, this trench-coated faceless sicko from the committee who's like supposed to be an investigator or a thug or something and he has a big like cow patty of shit in his hand and walks up to the local and just smears it very literally with his bare hand he just holds the shit in his hand yeah so you can see what they thought of the mcclellan committee smears on the teamsters but you know, simultaneous with all of these investigations of corruption, the Brotherhood of Teamsters actually basically con- unionizes like the whole South. Mm-hmm. The CIO failed, the AFL failed, the Teamsters really pushed through and organized the South. But notable for its time, this was the bloodiest organizing tribe. No deaths that I could find, but a lot of people get you know injured and beaten up yeah. and shot. And that sort of thing. A lot of Teamsters end up getting arrested and prosecuted under the Hobbs Anti-Racketeering Act for, again, extorting these kinds of gains. In particular, in Alabama, you have these like Southern white supremacist prosecutors just prosecuting Teamsters all over the place. Yeah, it seems to me that the type of corruption that they were, the type of corruption that you could charge Hoffa with, it looks like they're going more for that class struggle extortion type yeah right was hoffa doing the boodling type yeah absolutely yeah um so at this but of a very specific sort like Mm -hmm. hoffa cut a lot of deals and the best way i would characterize them because really they prosecutors found it very hard to sink hoffa and we'll we'll talk about that a bit next mm-hmm. episode when we actually go into legal cases. They found it very hard to sink off on any of these actual corruption charges. And tellingly, when he went to the McClellan committee, mm-hmm. they expected him to take the fifth. Like other really mobbed up Teamsters like Tony Provenzano, mm-hmm. Johnny Dio in New York, they all came and just started taking the fifth and them and all over the place so the committee couldn't force them to talk about where they cut checks to, mm-hmm. where they got money from. Hoffa never took the fifth. I wonder if uh, I wonder I wonder if uh, Tony Dio was related. Johnny to, Dio. Oh, Johnny Dio was related to Ronnie James Dio. I wish. No. No, no. It was it was uh, short for his actual. I think Ronnie. I think really? Ronnie James. That might be. That would be so sick. He's from uh, Cortland, New York, I believe. Although Johnny Dio was like one of the worst like extortionists. Mm-hmm. He threw acid on a reporter. Who questioned him about like Jesus. what he was doing? Yes. Yeah. Well, sorry, he had a henchman, a flunky, right, throw yeah. acid. Obviously, he didn't do it so, himself. So uh, yeah. that Ronald James Padabona was Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, I'm pretty the sure Johnny Dio was Johnny Dio Gardi. Okay, different yeah. guy. And now you know Ronnie James Dio. He's not the he's not the acid thrower. Uh, he he would be the acid taking type, obviously. But oh yeah, he would just run with it. But you know, <laughs> not yeah, he'd keep it burning. So. Hoffa at this time is actually extremely provocative. He even threatens to organize the NYPD into a union mm-hmm. uh, under the Teamsters banner so that they can, you know, break Teamsters strikes. Oh, wow. So, one would think investigate Teamsters. Mm-hmm. But this Southern organizing drive, obviously, literally while these Southern congressmen and senators are dealing with the looming collapse of Jim Crow, really freaks him out. And it was actually like a, he did direct violence during this strike, although it's really interesting how it, it came, comes out from the 
Ralph and Estelle James book, they note that Hoffa looks upon moderate doses of violence as merely another acceptable means for attaining his ends. Mm. As recently as 1962, I heard him order the beating of a man 3,000 miles away. And on another occasion, I heard him instruct his cadre on precisely how to ambush non-union truck drivers with gunfire to frighten them, but not to kill. Mm. The National Labor Relations Board filed a document in the Southern campaign during this unionization drive, uh, documenting the sad touching of equipment, vandalism, mm -hmm. gunshots in the night, bricks thrown. It was serious stuff. It's not as though they weren't using violent tactics. It's just for the Teamsters, that's how the South was won. And notably, it's the only union to effectively unionize below the Mason-Dixon line. Interesting. How much of that was in Arkansas, I wonder? Home of Senator McClellan. It was definitely there. Mm. So using these hot cargo agreements and also another tactic called grievance strikes, um, which were where the union would negotiate in its contract that they were allowed to strike over any particular grievance. And the thing is, in any workplace, trucking firm, there's always a lot of shit the boss is doing wrong. There's always a grievance. Yeah, it's kind of like they're kind of like how every kitchen has a health code violation. Yeah, yeah. So in, in effect, this gave them kind of an out to strike when ready. Mm to fire away. But as I admitted to you, Peter, the corruption was real. And in particular, the connections to mafia organizations, LCN organizations were very real. Hoffa during this time, we're talking about the 1950s here, made a deal with a guy named Red Dorfman. And Red Dorfman was shady businessman slash lawyer mm. who had insurance companies. And Hoffa allowed Dorfman to do business with the kind of central conferences, health, safety, and welfare funds mm -hmm. as their insurance provider in return for Red Dorfman opening the door as a fixer between Hoffa himself and members of the Chicago mob mm -hmm. and the New York-based mob. Mm -hmm. Every time I've seen a reference to like, this must be how the mafia provided muscle for Hoffa. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any corroboration, but what it, what it does seem to have done is it does provide a means of communication, like a cutout that allows Hoffa to communicate with these mafia organizations when they could potentially come down on him. Right. So, um, so if it wasn't for muscle, yeah. Then let's clarify this. If it wasn't for muscle, and I agree that it would make sense that it wouldn't be because it appears that he had a fair amount of muscle on his own in the form of Teamsters. Yeah. You know, including Teamsters that are literally just recruiters and organizers because right, they're, they're tough. Yeah. Because they're heavies. Yeah. Um they have what, strength builds. what is it? What is it you think Hoffa was trying to get in his dealings with the mafia figures? Well, one thing that we know in particular, like concretely, is that Hoffa hoped to use some of his, his connections to get to overcome internal opposition in the mm -hmm. Teamsters to him becoming president. Mm -hmm. And one so of some of these mob people controlled Teamster locals. They did. Yeah. So in, in New York, New Jersey. In New York, New Jersey, and Chicago. Okay. And Hoff, from what I found in the newspaper archives, most of the strongest anti-Hoffa opposition came from, frankly, like pretty mobbed up locals in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And that was opposition to him becoming president in 1957 of the Teamsters. Mm -hmm. 
to overcome this, he did things like uh, he tried to take over the New York Labor Council using a series of what are called paper locals. Mm -hmm. And this was a scheme that Bobby Kennedy like really, really went after him on mm -hmm. and the McClellan Committee. But through Red Dorfman, who sent a letter to uh, a New York racketeer named Johnny Diogardi, Johnny Dio, mm -hmm. Dio managed to apply for and get kind of the breaking up kind mm -hmm. of like a, you would for like a, like a gerrymandering right. of six locals with like barely any people. And we're not talking like a dozen, but we're talking like a couple hundred rather than a few thousand, right. which was the normal amount for a local in New York. Yeah. These locals would then funnel their votes mm -hmm. to pro Hoffa candidates when it came time to vote for the general president. So mm -hmm. by local, not by member. It's not like it's a general vote. Yes. So so it's a bit like, you know, to use the Holy Roman Empire analogy, the Holy Roman Empire had a very complex and changing system to figure out who would be the big man, the emperor. Certain provinces or bishoprics or what have you in the empire would be would have elector privileges. Sometimes they would go by family. Sometimes, most often, they would go be attached to a given territory like Saxony or what have you. Sometimes it would be from, it, there would be a vote for somebody who was outside of the empire. Like the Thirty Years' War, the thing that sparked it was an attempt to control Bohemia, which was not nowadays most of the Czech Republic, which was not part of the Holy Roman Empire, but they had, a, the King of Bohemia had a seat on the Electoral College, uh -huh. as they called it of the Holy Roman Empire. And it was a swing vote between the Protestants and the Catholics. So this this is a bit like, and and it didn't matter like what kind of population they had, like the Archduke of, uh, sorry, the Archbishop of Menz, which is just like one city, had the same vote as the King of Bohemia, right. which is a kingdom uh, with much more people. So this is a bit like, oh, you gotta, you gotta sidle up to the Duke of wherever, you know, who has this old handed down elector chair and be like, okay, you gotta, you gotta give my guy Otto or Heinrich your 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 vote at the college. Yeah, it's old or, or Rotten Borough in the old British system. Yeah, exactly. Like like old Sarum, which had like eight people. Yeah, had, had a at apartments. Yeah, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing to ever become president. Yeah, of teamsters, regardless of whether you're like aggressive or reactionary or you're just like a hard boiled guy who's like playing all sides. Yeah, yeah, and. The interesting thing about it is, in spite of the fact that he, he definitely cut this deal, like he admitted he knew Johnny Dio. Mm -hmm. Kennedy tried to grill him on it, saying, like, I don't think you're tough to tough enough to deal with Johnny Dio. And Hoffa's response was just like, I never said I was tough. Huh. That's smart. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Kennedy probably RFK probably really thought he got him with that one. But so what did the mob expect for what was there? What was the quid for their pro quo? In the case of people like Johnny Dio or really any of the other gangster-controlled locals, they expected to have control of their fiefdom. Mm. To be able to rake off money and get no show To jobs. have you look the other way. Yep. And potentially to, and later on when they have the many, many millions of dollars in the pension fund, to mm. have some of their businesses getting loans yes. out of that pension the central fund. states pension fund right which built a substantial part of florida i understand benchmark florida central part of las, las vegas, vegas but yeah. as we'll see in this story you know back during the old hoffa days it it turned a profit yeah and then when it was turned over to wall street investment banks mm -hmm. it was run into the absolute so uh i might have to cut some of this but 
one other interesting thing, and I know I don't have this in the show notes, about this kind of effort and all these deals to get elected, is that the anti-Hoffa forces are not like, like clean up the union forces. Hoffa himself has the potential to get elected because out of the McClellan committee, they managed to absolutely just murk, let Lance like he's done Dave Beck, the prior president of the Teamsters. Because Dave Beck just did the old fashioned, just steal out of the treasury corruption. He yeah. just took money out of the Indian treasury and used it to build and pay for a house for himself in Washington. And he was, you know, the like epitome of a business union as mm-hmm. collaborator, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call him. He was like yeah. an American Legion member. Oh, great. Yeah. He was on the Chamber of Commerce. Oh. And Hoffa, who in public was very, very much seen like a Beck loyalist. You know, there was a lot of rumors that Hoff was the one who dropped the dime on exactly where Beck's bodies were buried. Mm. And the guy that was put in charge of cleaning up the union, a guy named John F. English, he, much to the surprise of Bobby Kennedy, was a huge Hoffa supporter mm. during this election, in spite of the accusations that Hoffa was corrupt mm. himself, which is partly true. Sure. I think it says a lot that John English supported Hoffa against the opposition because the opposition, it seems like the the real battle here was between people who wanted to take the union into really organizing overdrive mm-hmm. to take the Dobbs model of negotiating a uniform working conditions, wages anywhere you are in the country, whether you're like a trucker in Jim Crow, Alabama, or you're a trucker up mm. outside of Detroit. There was a battle between that and like, we've got money, we're fine, let's mm. sit on our haunches. Yeah. We've got the members we've got, we don't need more. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to organize all, we don't all need militancy or yeah, we don't need a bunch of department store workers and warehouse people, we're fine. Yeah. And that I think was the really big contest. So Robert F. Kennedy, who said that. John English's integrity is beyond question. He can't be accused of any corruption. Mm -hmm. Marvels that he's a Hoffa supporter, but maybe it's not such a mystery at all. Right. And uh, I think this is probably a good time for a short break. Mm. Mr. Hoffa, on that uh, hot cargo definition, wouldn't you agree that uh, you always, you also uh, referred to uh, material coming from of employees who refuse to join the union. They have they have a choice and they decide not to join the union. You declare the product hot cargo in that cell. I do not believe, and the Supreme Court has agreed, I do not believe that union members should be forced to handle merchandise against their own individual desires, which they know are being manufactured or delivered by drivers on substandard conditions about wages, hours, conditions, pensions, or welfare, which ultimately will destroy their conditions. And we reserve the right, and the Supreme Court approves the hot cargo provision in our contracts, recognizing individual membership rights. Now, Mr. Hutt, may I follow through with just one question? Didn't the court say such contracts are not enforceable, Mr. Hutt? Mr. Hoffa, how about the so-called shakedown picketing, which would force an employer to recognize and bargain with a union? You're against that too, I think. So 
we're coming up on here the real meat of this episode, which is kind of a close-up examination of two very different, very powerful locals that were nevertheless both deeply connected to Hoffa, and I think kind of represent the two souls of where the Teamsters were going at the time. Two houses alike in dignity. Now, one of these, of course, was Local 688 of Harold Gibbons, uh, socialist organizer. Uh, the other one was Local 560 in New Jersey, headed by one Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano, the lead suspect in Hoffa's murder. Mm. So the deal he cut with both these locals sets in motion the conflict that will eventually lead to Hoffa's own death. But let's start with St. Louis. Yes. Meet, meet, meet. Let's meet in St. Louis. So Local 688 in St. Louis is the local that's headed by Harold Gibbons and a guy named Ernest Galloway. Both were socialist radicals going back to the 1930s, and both came from the American hell of company-owned coal towns, mm -hmm. or really coal camps. It's the real mini-dictatorship of American history. Mm -hmm. So in Local 688, they represented people like department store workers, wholesale workers, taxi cab drivers, and brewery workers in what in the 1940s and 50s was obviously a deeply segregated, deeply impoverished, but still industrial city where black and white workers lived in separate and unequal rat-infested slums. And this was St. Louis. St. Louis. Yes. Usually serviced by private utilities that would occasionally just fuck up and not care. Yeah. Saw a passage from Harold Gibbons about how one time, in his words, the sewer utility for this whole neighborhood where tons of local 688 members live just fucked up and just started spew like oh, they had pipes exploded, just spewed sewage in the streets. Good. No yes. one would do anything about it the, except for local 688 the of the market, teamsters. The market didn't get started. So Ernest Calloway was African American. Gibbons was an Irish guy, and I mean he was a really Irish guy. His mm -hmm. father at least was literally from Ireland. Uh -huh. Uh, Gibbons was born in an anthracite coal patch camp in Pennsylvania, uh, which had dozens of miners' deaths in mm. some years. Mm. There was like like a two-year period in the 1920s where just like 48 miners Jesus. died in the mine. And you had rows of these shacks in the, the camp. They were just called widow's rows oh. because all of the ladies who had lost their husbands in the mines would kind of share resources and Jesus. live together. Impressing. Calloway didn't grow up much better at all, and but obviously in a lot of ways worse than the bituminous coal mining region of West Virginia. Mm. Uh, during the labor shortages of World War One, the coal bosses realized that they should send agents to try to bring in labor from the Jim Crow, basically black peasantry mm -hmm. of the South, in some ways happy to escape. Mm that was still like this plantation economy, yeah. sharecropping and being in debt forever, mm -hmm. um, but found a new world entirely in Coal Town, Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, both described their childhoods as pretty bleak. Mm -hmm. uh, Calway, who's, Calway is a very poetic expressor of things. You, maybe, maybe a bit sappy. I'm not a poetry guy like you, mm -hmm. um, but he talks about having this fixed place in the world and lowering his expectations accordingly. And uh, generational class warfare influenced both of them. With Callaway, uh, he talks about the brutality of the Baldwin Feltz mine guards. Mm. And they provoked 
equal retaliation from the miners. Because one thing that you have to remember is all these guys all live in the holler. Oh yeah. Like they've, got, they've got guns, they've got explosives. They've got they explosives. Know how to use them. Yeah. Justified it's just like the end stage of this yeah. long process, man. Yeah. Uh big Ernest Calloway, his father, uh, is the son described him as a and this is great. Like some some folk ballad writers should have written a song about mm. Ernest Calloway. He's described by his son as an ex-farmer, ex-gambler, ex-gun-toting unionist, and refugee from a West Virginia posse of mine guards. So basically had to escape one holler Damn. for another, where the oh, Baldwin man. Phelps mine guards couldn't find him after Rinse and repeat. Yeah. he fought the wrong people. Mm. He had apparently been a very strong union man, obviously, and he was wounded repeatedly by Baldwin Phelps. Mm. private mine guards are called in west virginia gun thugs mm -hmm. i like that i like that word I, I borrow it sometimes respect to west virginia for it i'm not trying to uh yeah you can send me an email if you don't want me using it but uh west virginians but i, I mean it with respect but yeah thank you for your phrase gun thug yeah it's a good one callaway actually sounded very proto fred hampton at times mm. he he had a riveting dream when he was just he kind of adventured around he was in the mountains in mexico yeah they discovered that one must believe in the essential oneness of people and be willing to fight for that belief, mm. according to author Robert Bustle, who whose book, Fighting for Total Person Unionism, we borrow from heavily for this segment. Mm. Now, with Gibbons, quote, hardly a day went by without seeing an ambulance racing to the mine past the front of our house. Unionism was, quote, a matter of course in this environment. Several of Gibson's Gibbons' brothers were union committee men and described his father as a union guy. If you scab, Gibbons remembered, it was never forgotten in that close-knit, intensely pro-union community in which he was raised. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, both of these people go from this kind of existence in culpits to running away, obviously, to the city. Mm -hmm. And in both their cases, they try to prove their lot with education before becoming union organizers. Gibbons Callaway met in Chicago during the 1930s and joined in on his uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations organizers. And both were pretty red by that point. Gibbons, interestingly- This much, was in the 30s? This was in the 30s. Yeah. Much like Farrell Dobbs, appears to have just been like on the orbit of the Socialist Workers Party, the Trotskyists, who got expelled from the Teamsters around this time. Mm -hmm. But as Robert Bossel notes, the available evidence suggests that Gibbons had no formal relationship with the SWP, although he was clearly acquainted with some of its leaders, attended SWP gatherings, and occasionally contributed to its efforts. Mm -hmm. The close correspondence between his pronouncements and the SWP positions does suggest, however, that he was significantly influenced by the party's views, even if he resisted formal affiliation. Mm -hmm. So Gibbons is often described as a socialist, and he never really disavows the label entirely, mm -hmm. even in his you know, more conservative older years. And the interesting thing about him is Gibbons, like Hoffa, who studied at the feet of Farrell Dobbs, really truly believes in class struggle. Mm -hmm. So Local 688, interestingly, for a conversation on corruption earlier, was a clean union. Stuff didn't go missing from the Treasury. There weren't you know, loads of organizers who did nothing all day because they were the sons and nephews right. of like whatever piece of shit was yeah, the yeah. boss. 
And even the FBI acknowledged, despite many probes, they couldn't find any sources of corruption, mm -hmm. any pilfering from the Union Treasury. Uh, Gibbons, however, did have a particular vice, which I thought was kind of funny, which is he would love to took, take expensive Union trips uh. on the company time, act like he was like hmm. James Bond. Uh. He would fly in first class. He'd pick up a flight attendant or an actress and uh -huh. go out to a fancy dinner. They'd uh -huh. sleep in a nice hotel like the Waldorf, uh -huh. order room service, and charge an old union credit card. Okay, yeah. I've, I was I was really hoping when you said he liked expensive trips, I was really hoping that he was like trying to get some culture. Like he was like going to Paris to look at the Louvre, going to Venice. To oh, he did that Angela. too. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, he did that all over the place. He he was always sent on like fact-finding missions to Venice, yeah. to 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 Paris, Paris, Venice. Yeah, you know. Later on, he did a self-finance trip to lead labor leaders to Hanoi uh, during the Vietnam War. So, well, maybe you could have met. You know, if you liked swanning around with actresses, maybe you could have met Jane Fonda there. One can imagine. Mm. He really did have a thing for actresses. Mm. Like it just keeps getting remarked in this kind of like, you know, veiled way. They're like that Hollywood lifestyle that Harold Gibbons so fond over and aspired mm. to. I'm like, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, he, I assume he was married. Yeah. 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 Tellingly, though, like a good Reagan file control Democratic Union, every one of these uh, expenses and trips was democratically approved by several councils on the union, all of whom spoke highly of him. Yeah. Like, they just couldn't find a dissenter. So they're just like, he's our guy. Yeah, he's our guy. We've got to send him out to have Loft's team. <laughs> not all our guys are pure and a shot guys, you know. Yeah. So he, he's not a, a buttoned-up guy like Ron Carey, who eventually leads the team. Or like Hoffa. Or like Hoffa. Yeah. Um, but he's not a Dave Beck either, where right. he's just stealing. Yeah, just stealing like yeah. So this is not only probably one of the most democratic locals, it also had a high degree of participation and real structured community involvement that was entirely out of his time. And for me, it was more reminiscent of stuff you see in like the 90s with like neighborhood assemblies in Mexico or um, much more recently with Chicago Teachers Union. So like the Chicago Teachers Union made just monumental efforts and had a lot of success in kind of breaking the boundary between themselves and the community around them supporting a strike. And you can see a lot of that echoes of that with Local 688. So in the 1950s, Local 688 had about 10,000 members at any given time. And it was a force for, and it, with, with that kind of a membership, it forced through integration, environmental safety standards in St. Louis. <laughs> and in Gibbons' words, it broke through, or actually Callaway's words, it broke through the low-wage barrier <laughs> in St. Louis. Uh, it's only a short step in the political awareness of the member, Gibbons says, from lower bus fares, lower taxes, from better trash collection to better labor legislation, from street lights to more civil rights. God, I hate them. I'm going to cut this whole thing. I hate that rhyming scheme. Mm. <laughs> Anyways, it, it, eventually, Gibbons and Callaway hoped that this kind of enhanced political awareness that they got in the union would lead local 688 members to support structural changes needed to improve their communities and press the municipal government to fulfill these obligations. And what that meant in practice is they literally made the community function like a workplace, mm -hmm. a unionized workplace. Yes. So if you had a grievance, you could literally fill out a 
grievance form mm -hmm. and file it with your local six yeah. yeah community steward mm. in 1952 in local 688 you attended what were actually compulsory meetings i don't mean they like forced you right, right? like with muscle but right. they would find you if you didn't attend yeah um they would add it to your dues but you would attend compulsory meetings with your other union brothers and sisters black and white where you discuss wages hours managing benefits but also like social issues like the segregation of the school system yeah um the pollution in the city, mm -hmm. uh, the decaying buildings, right. rat infestations, the slums, mm -hmm. tuberculosis, mm -hmm. tetanus, and getting health care, whether mm -hmm. you could get it. In any neighborhood with more than 25 Teamsters in them in St. Louis, the local made a set up community stewards who function mm -hmm. like shop stewards. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't ever been in you guys workplace, which is probably most people listening, you gotta yeah. say. A shop steward is your elected union representative who basically acts as your muscle, your negotiator, your face with the boss on stuff that grievance you have to manage. I hope you're describing that right. Mm -hmm. So I have not ever had a shop steward. I haven't either. I've, I've helped organize a union, but I've never actually been in the promised land of actual union employment. Yeah, no, I grew up in Texas. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so although the Teamsters had not been deterred by the post-World War II counteroffensive against the labor movement, Callaway observed that labor could no longer rely on what he called the apron strings of government, a la the FDR days. Uh, and it didn't mean that they have to become, you know, self-actualized right, libertarian individuals. Yeah, he said the prospect of sharply diminished support from the state prompted him to articulate an additional concern. If the time comes when government protection is not forthcoming, then where is the necessary vitality among workers' organizations to resist? Mm -hmm. In other words, if you don't have this broad community long-standing support, mm -hmm. when the offensive comes, it can't just be your, you know, your, your 20 be, guys in the union. Yeah, stand around with your dick in your hand. He said, it, basically, it also has to be a pro-union and pro-worker sentiment in the churches, yes. in the civil organizations and everything. This, of course, all of these community stewards filing grievances with aldermen and the mayor mm -hmm. and stuff like that, put them right up against St. Louis's power structure, yes. which was set up by basically uh, anti-reconstructionists at the state level mm -hmm. after they toppled the reconstruction government right. in the civil war. The local democratic party, basically. Yeah. yeah. The rich white guys. Yeah. They're really, really openly racist rich yeah. guys. They had a weak mayor in place, and a lot of the city's departments were actually under the control of the Missouri government mm. at any given time. But, so they need home rule, maybe. Yeah, no, home rule was a, was a, was a big issue. They were able to get thousands of people, like community members, at just these committee meetings that were not these compulsory union meetings, but just outright community steward, community meeting on say like school integration mm -hmm. or how are we going to get more accessible housing yeah it's still an issue in union organizing today how much to get involved in broader social struggles yeah and speaking as someone who has worked on union organizing in the last you know 10 years i could tell you that for some people the idea that the union will get involved in social struggle outside of the workplace is like one of the reasons they would want to join, right? right. Because uh, like, like they can set up uh, protections against sexual harassment, which is obviously a workplace issue as well, but that they could get involved in say like trans rights 
right, that they can get in the street during Black Lives Matter or whatever else, which some unions do and some unions don't, most don't. Um, whereas for other people when I was organizing, you know, however sympathetic they might have been to those causes, they all, you know, there were other people who said, well, I like, you know, I don't want the union to do that because I want the union to focus on the workplace stuff. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not, the, the thing I find interesting about that, because obviously you've heard that divide, is that with Gibbons and Callaway's model, it's not just that you're asking union members or union organizers like, hey, you must also participate in this struggle or that right, struggle, yeah. and we'll give you the analysis of why that, that matters. Right. You. All right, too. It's that they the boundary of the union itself expanded into the whole community yeah. in a really concrete way. Right. Like a community member could fill out a form and go into the community mm -hmm. office and be like, we need this, like, we need more streetlights on this street. Right. It's difficult to get that kind of concreteness, I think, in a lot of contemporary workplaces. Yeah. Not impossible. And there are some that you can do it better than others. And though it probably helps if you had, you know, the whole Teamster legacy behind you of what they were able to do before Taft-Hartley and whatever came down. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it mattered a lot that they had a union treasury. They had a lot yes. of power. Yes. That they could put behind these things. Yeah. It's like, that's where the wedge them. Yes. So as, as Gibbons and Kelly said, they actually used Local 688 to really kind of force through integration in St. Louis much faster than other places, or desegregation, I should say. They mustered union soldiers, union toughs, basically, to picket and sit in at drugstores mm -hmm. and theaters and restaurants all over the city. We're so used to seeing that kind of figure as, like, you know, implicitly racist right right we assume that big tough guy big tough white guys or arguably big tough guys in general from the mid-20th century are just going to be racist that's it yeah it's not really a class inflected stereotype oh, yeah. oh, like sure. it's it's through it's through our nice university education that we became, yes, that we became so there. nice yeah when you know all of the the, the governors and senators oh yeah time are are full of college degrees. Yeah, they're all in a lot of cases they're more educated. I mean, this is a whole rant of mine. We don't need to go into that. But yeah, no, it's uh and and who knows what the personal comportment was on the part of these these union and maybe it could have used some brushing up, but you, you have to admire that they came through in the pinch. I think I'd like to give an overview at that at this point of like the games that the union won because They've been variously described as like quasi utopian, mm. and I do think that to a person who's been scraping by in absolute poverty right. in St. Louis in the in the forties would see these as utopian. But they won really tangible, concrete things that I don't have today. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Sixty years later, yeah. Years later. Uh, so within two years of Gibbons taking Callaway taking charge of Local Six Eighty Eight. Uh, it became so much of a worker's ideal that 25 years later, it still looked revolutionary. As uh, the author Stephen Brill says in The Teamsters, Gibbons' workers got free, unlimited hospitalization and medical care for themselves and their spouses and children, which was unheard of in 1951. Mm. Now, this isn't they got health insurance. He means they got what's basically like a national health service mm. for their members. Mm. So Gibbons explains that as the doctors were still charging on a, unaffordable rates, 
they quote, built the, our own Labor Health Institute with its own doctors yeah. that handled everything, and employers were forced to foot the entire bill. Members got free dental care, uh, except bridge work and dentures, which they got at cost. They got free home nursing services for their elderly or disabled um, family members or themselves. Uh, they got drugs and eyeglasses at cost. They got free legal advice. Yeah. In the early 1950s with the Korean War and inflation during that time, food prices rose rapidly. So the union opened their own nonprofit grocery store members. Wow. They built a recreation complex that, quote, included a an indoor swimming pool and a gymnasium center and a 300-acre outdoor swimming, camping, tennis, and golf course complex. And Brill added, in short, the workers got the same kind of country club facilities that their bosses had. Mm. And Gibbons pointed out that for many union members of all races were from the slums, of St. Louis, but for black members of the union, this was kind of like an oasis since it was the only decent oh, yeah. public facility that they were allowed to go to mm. without being uh, arrested for trespass right. or attacked. Right. You gotta, you, now I'm imagining like, you know, the reverse of those slobs versus snobs movies where the slobs try to go to the country club to like swim in the pool and play tennis. But in this case, it's like some down on their heels, like St. Louis aristocrat, like Elliot, like T.S. Eliot's family <laughs> trying to get in uh, to the Teamster Country Club. And the Teamsters are all like, I don't know, Tom, where's your union card? Where's your union card, buddy? Yeah, you 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 can't swim here. Or we'll, we'll kind of let you hang out as a guest of one of the others, but he doesn't feel... Sorry, cut this. Meanwhile, like a rainbow coalition of children are just doing cannonballs yeah. and splashing the guy over and over. Yeah. <laughs> This yeah. cream-colored soup getting just disgustingly soaked with chlorine. I need to practice golf so I can get someone to marry me to let me out of my genteel poverty. Just help me out here, guys. I'll be out of your hair. Maybe you should learn to drive a bus. Yeah. So uh, there was also even a low-cost retirement and nursing home built exclusively for members. Wow. None of this, however, would have been possible or sustainable were it not for the fact that local 688 went to war with the mafia wow okay so gangster elements directly confronted gibbons uh, when emissaries of a guy named frank buster quote close quote wartman uh, a mobster who oversaw who oversaw gambling, bookmaking, and other criminal enterprises in southern illinois and part of st louis approached him and demanded that he place several of their associates on his payroll. Wartman, who already exercised influence within several teams and locals, was seeking to expand his operations and saw Gibbons as an impediment to his plans. Mm -hmm. In other words, he's not a clean guy who's been bought. Time to muscle him and put some of my guys on payroll. Mm -hmm. This is, of course, according to um, Robert Bustle's book. Mm -hmm. Wartman, for his part, the gangster, uh, was a notorious career criminal whom the St. Louis Post-Dispatch described as, quote, an East Side agent for the Chicago Book Capone Syndicate. A member of Steamfitters Local 562, Wartman had a history of shaking down union leaders and businessmen, along with a reputation for violence if his demands went unheeded. Although Gibbons rejected Wartman's ultimatum to accept mobsters under his payroll, he was clearly frightened when he received death threats for his refusal to comply. And the FBI actually documented a bunch of death threats, and he was really definitely in danger and... Afraid. Yeah. But so, the, and the FBI presumably, you know, helped out, right? 
Oh yeah, they they, they were like, we have to save an honest union like yours. Yeah, otherwise, you know, people might go for crooked unions. Yeah. Sorry, we were doing sarcasm, everybody. Yeah, they didn't do that. They didn't help. Yeah. Uh, Gibbons reported receiving little support from others, and he approached about the dilemma, and he went to first the editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, who said Wartman is a big Eastside gangster connected with the old Capone gang, and a St. Louis police board member nice. who did nothing. Uh -huh. uh, his fears... Bustle says, were likely accentuated by the murder of two laborers union officials earlier that year in 1952, reportedly by associates of John Vitale, the reputed head of the Italian syndicate mm. in town. So is Wartman like a, I guess, could go either way, like... He's an Irish guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I was going to guess either Jewish or just like... I, yeah, you could really go either German. way. I saw some people call him Buster Wartman. I saw some people call him Irish Wartman. Oh, maybe he's uh, German-Irish, like, uh, what's his face? And uh, anyway, yeah, as Stephen Brill said in the Teamsters when he interviewed Gibbons on this, in those days it was common knowledge that the guys running the Joint Council in St. Louis were hoodlums. <laughs> Gibbons likes to say hoodlums. <laughs> one day, one of my guys was grabbed at a bar by one of these hoodlums and told that either we put some of their people on the payroll of 688 or he was going to kill me. Well, we didn't know a goddamn thing about hoodlums. So we went over to Detroit, we talked to Hoffa, and Hoffa said, well, you got no problems. Just put somebody on the payroll. They won't bother you. No one's going to get killed. But at the end of six months, you'll be taking orders from this guy you put on the payroll, and he'll be running the local. Mm. And Hoffa said the alternative is to, quote, get yourself a pistol and the first son of the bitch who walks in the door, shoot him in the head. Mm. Gibbons then replies, Fine, goodbye. And went back to St. Louis and bought pistols and his yeah. account. Was he was he previously much involved with like heavy stuff before? By all accounts, not really. I mean he if you were he, gonna be a teamster in the 30s, you would see some of it. Yeah, yeah. He would he and especially in Chicago. So yeah. he definitely saw violence, but I think he just didn't know how to deal with like rackets. Right. Um, or with all the kind of surreptitious violence that a mafioso will do mm. you know they're going to just case you until they find you at your weakest yes. and then beat you up or kill you mm. it's not a matter of like are you going to win this stand-up fight with them right now yeah, yeah. but they went back and they bought pistols in st louis so local 688 crew um including gibbons callaway and so on they bought nine pistol holders that they listed as office supplies mm. Which, you know, given their line of work, actually, sure. yeah, it makes most makes sense. However, they reached out to Hoffa, who brought like the heavies down from Detroit, mm -hmm. got the international to put the locals of the Teamsters that were controlled by Buster Wartman into trusteeship. So those locals no longer controlled by Wartman. Mm -hmm. And then he put Gibbons at the head of those, that trusteeship, thereby basically doing a coup mm -hmm. on all of the Wartman locals. Mm -hmm. And he put bodyguards on Gibbons to protect him. Mm. All of which doesn't make any sense if you think that Hoffa is like bought and paid for by the mob. Right. Yeah. And, you know, not for nothing, but like, it's not like the mafia had necessarily the kind of unity of command that we tend to assume. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a certain degree of coordination, it seems, between the different groups. But especially, my understanding is that Chicago was never fully controlled. Right. 
by any of the people who had a pretense to controlling Italian organized crime. Yeah, let alone a town like St. Louis. Right. If you were like, you know, it even they even allude to this in The Godfather, where um, where where Don Corleone just says, "Oh, Capone, he's an we can't do anything with Chicago. He's Capone is just such an animal. Uh, he's out. He's out of the group." You know, when they get all the Godfathers together, there's no Chicago guy because you can't do anything with that. Sorry. Interesting thing about that, mm -hmm. um, but we'll talk about that in a second. So with the approval of Teams with President Dave Beck, mm -hmm. Thomas Flynn, a special representative from the International Union, came to St. Louis in March 1953, according to Bustle. Mm -hmm. Accompanied by Hoffa, Flynn quickly obtained resignations from the officers from the trucking local through which Wartman had leaned on Gibbons placing it under trusteeship. Mm. Like that use of that word, obtained. <laughs> like, how do you think that Yeah, that's a, good, that's, a, that's a really good word for it. Just yeah. he shows up with like fucking like Roland McMaster, like six foot four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'd like to obtain your resignation. <laughs> yeah. We're Gibbons back there with like all of his guys like quivering, but like holding up yeah. guns. Yeah, we're, 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 we're trying. At the same time, Gibbons convened a meeting of local 688 shop stewards, announced his intention to clean up the mob in both best and locals mm. and received approval to shut down St. Louis warehouses if employers try to negotiate with the gangsters and circumvent the union. In other words, the gangsters had definitely had the ability, this was the fear, to, to just tell the workers, don't worry about the union, you're going back to fucking work. And Buster Wartman says so. Yeah. So Gibbons obtained approval from the National that if they do that, I'm going to strike this warehouse, I'm going to blockade it. Mm. No, one's, no business is going on if... Wartman forces these guys to go back to work. Yeah. If you if you're going to maintain union democracy, you need to have the capacity to tell bad actors that you won't cooperate. Potentially yeah. within you're not going to push around. Yeah. Shortly thereafter, Hoffa, as we noted, imported bodyguards to protect Gibbons, underscoring the international union's resolve to enforce this decision. Indeed, angry members of local 600 rushed the stage to get at Hoffa during one union meeting, resulting in an, again, very understated, is described as an extended melee. <laughs> in other words, Hoffa's got to beat the shit out of him. Yeah. At Local 682, a dissident seeking to enter a meeting suffered a serious beating, an incident that undersco underscored Gibbons' willingness to use muscle to establish his authority. I want to say, this was also very public, and Gibbons talks about this later when Robert Kennedy is grilling him on the violence he used mm -hmm. to do this and yeah. whether he was a clean guy. It's like, well, it was literally violence to keep the mafia, who one of whom was like, uh, who had the cops in their pocket, right? Yeah. They couldn't have gone to the cops to solve this. He, he literally went to the cops and they're yeah, like, they're like no. <laughs> you're on your own, Harry. Yeah. Maybe we won't be seeing as many strikes anymore. Yeah. Go ahead and dangle. <laughs> so this was very public. He literally announced to the press, I'm going to clean up my union and I'm bringing in guys yeah to do it we're bringing election officials like election monitors right <laughs> uh, to, to make sure that we have clean elections sir what are you doing here i'm an election monitor <laughs> uh gibbons for his part also kind of got the message forevermore that he needed his own heavies mm. gibbons i think understood he was an intelligence build he needs strength build yeah guys. yeah yeah and so he brought on his own 300 pound bruiser uh bernard barker who is an ex-boxer at 325 pounds the super super heavyweight the super heavyweight <laughs> yeah. yeah 
The help from Hoffa obviously came through with a catch. Hoffa, likely through Dorfman, who we described earlier, who he led in on doing business with the pension fund, sought and received permission from the Chicago and Detroit La Casa Nostra affiliates that they would not retaliate against Gibsons and the team, I'm sorry, Gibbons and the Teamsters for basically throwing a whole bunch of their guys at work mm-hmm. and really just taking it to the gangsters in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Hilariously, in my opinion, Dan Moldea, who probably gets like quoted on any Jimmy Hoffa story, like get on TV news and so he's probably the most nationally respected quote-unquote Hoffaologist. Mm-hmm. He described the Buster Wartman gangster-controlled locals as being union dissidents who Harold Gibbons, with the help of Hoffa, Why does he uh, think crushed. That? He never says. Just because he does Is it because he doesn't like Hoffa and Gibbons was close with Hoffa? Yes. Okay. It, it's literally just because he doesn't like Hoffa. He thinks Bobby Kennedy never made a mistake. All right. And if Hoffa ever uses force or Gibbons ever uses like force and violence. Mm-hmm. It's not because like that's how the game is played yeah. in this situation. It's not because you have to fight fire with fire. It's because there's people doing bad things to rebel locals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. But yeah, Buster Wartman, real gangster, mm-hmm. really was controlling locals. Mm-hmm. And Hoffa and Gibbons literally throw them out. Mm-hmm. Now, you might ask yourself, seeing as how Gibbons uh, just cleaned up his local, Peter, it's very democratic now. Yeah, They're really. building a health institute. Mm-hmm. It's not facing a, he surely isn't facing like a bunch of investigations. No, he, and he, he did what they prosecutions. want. So okay. after Gibbons cleaned up the local, he faced a massive escalation in prosecutions mm-hmm. because now they were more militant. In particular, they had a, frankly, like, pretty short but militant. This is like a 113-person taxi cab strike Mm -hmm. in late 1953. And that resulted in questions and prosecutions that Gibbons would still be facing all through the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So in summer and fall, uh, just to get this timeline on this escalating prosecutions, in summer and fall of 1953, Gibbons and the local became subjected to a targeted investigation for, quote, subversion and potential communist influence and for potential, quote, extortion using intimidation and coercion of the Hobbs Act. Even the FBI office in St. Louis, in an internal memo, marveled at the degree to which it appeared that St. Louis's industrial leaders, that's their quote, were exerting pressure for a prosecution of the local. And I'm pretty sure they just that's just saying the quiet part out loud. It just gives up the game. Yeah. The FBI is, is just saying, it seems like the local capitalists in this area don't like this union and just want us to prosecute them. All right. Oh, well. Yeah, we, we, know, we know a thing or two about that. In December of 1953, local 688 militants are indicted under the Hobbs Act for their role in the yellow cap strike for, mm-hmm. quote, obstructing interstate commerce, where militants tried to prevent scab cab drivers from picketing with violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the stuff I've read on this seems to me like there were instances where like they swarmed a cab and you know, rat rocket yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. There was one incident where a cab was allegedly shot at, uh-huh. and RFK tries to grill Gibbons on this mm-hmm. and says they shot at the cab. And Gibbons responds by saying, What we found out is that they were taking a cab into an alley and just shooting the hell out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then saying, calling the press and saying, Look what the union did. Right, right. <laughs> and then obviously, if there was anybody in the cab, they would be hurt. Right. They would be a hospital. Before. Something. Yeah. 
So in December of 1953, Gibbons himself is arrested on a charge. I believe he was arrested actually at like a like a party mm. on a charge of pushing a scab cab during the strike into the Mississippi River nice. himself. I mean that would that would if be some... put it, if you put it in neutral and it's downhill. No, I don't I don't mean on his own. I mean like oh. Gibbons, head of oh, the union, actually is just on the line, like pushing the cab. Yeah, yeah. Come on, guys. Let's go. One more push. Yeah. Yeah, so that charge was dropped because there was no evidence. Mm. In early 1954, Max Goldshine, a special assistant to the Attorney General of Missouri, who worked with the Senate investigations into organized crime for Bobby Kennedy, led an aggressive federal probe. Quote, according to the union, one of the sources of these allegations was a doctor who had fired from the, uh, the health institute staff and provided information to a St. Louis police sergeant. Mm -hmm. The sergeant who reportedly showed the informant his membership card in this is gonna this is a deep cut. Gerald L. K. Smith's Christian oh, nationalist shit. revealed his own special bias against 688. So the is it the doctor or the cop who is in with the, the cop? Oh wow. the sergeant. Uh that cop then says that Harold Gibbons was personally responsible for the fairgrounds race riot that occurred during efforts to integrate the city's swimming pools oh, wow. years earlier yeah wow that is a fucking that guy must have been like one of like two dozen members of gerald lk yeah. smith's party at that time. by that time yeah the, the last of his nazi kind yeah he's like and the, but, that Harold Gibbons started a race riot and he, he stirred it, up all the blacks and he thought it would impress a doctor who had been in who had been fired for one wonders what reason? Yeah, uh, from their from their clinic, their so, hospital, not just a clinic. This investigation, to the dismay of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Missouri and Goldshine, comes to nothing. The grand jury returns what is a no true bill, meaning we can't find an indictable crime on this evidence, but also with a gratuitous like statement of concern about local 688's growing power. In February of 1954, Gibbons is indicted again for contempt of grand jury because he refused to turn over financial reports in response to a subpoena, and he's briefly jailed before they let him out and get the financial records. I think this was like a basically a document conflict. We think there's more paper. No, there's not. Yeah. Yes, there is. In April and May of 1954. So in May of 1954, in November of 1954, in December of 1954, and so on, uh, Gibbons and his heads of the local keep getting indicted and charges dismissed. So uh, you could see why when Hoffa and others are attacked for you know criminality or falsifying records and stuff. Uh, Gibbons was out front and center saying, it's just a legal front to try to crush the union. Uh, RFK, for his part, as I said, kind of brings back all of the taxicab violence, all of the charges of you didn't turn over this form at the McClellan committee hearings. So even, like, even though he's like the cleanest guy and no one questions that. Doesn't do him any good. Doesn't do him any good.
might be worth turning now to the very opposite of Errol mm. Gibbons in every way. An absolute like tyranny of, mm -hmm. of a union local, local 560 in New Jersey. Uh, if there is a, a real devil's pact in the story, mm -hmm. and there is, it's between Hoffa and Tony, sorry, Anthony, well, Tony Pro Provenzano. We'll just refer to probably as Provenzano or Tony Pro. Mm -hmm. So Anthony Provenzano became the head of local 560, which he ran with his brother Sammy, Salvatore Sammy Provenzano and Nunzio Provenzano. And I found out just the other day there's another brother, and I don't even know who it is. Gummo Provenzano. Gummo Provenzano. Maybe he's a good one. It's like, I stay out of this bad stuff. I'm a chiropractor. <laughs> That's not all that good, but well, sometimes it's good to help some people. I'm a massage therapist. I'm a massage therapist. Yeah, that's a good trade. <laughs> so Tony Pro started out as a truck loader and trucker himself. He had a side hustle, which he hoped would be his like money and fame, which is prize fighting. He was a boxer. Hmm. But he's not a tank build like Roland McMaster. He's more like a suntanned, Florida-loving, diet-conscious fitness nut. So dexterity or con build? Yeah, I think he's a dex build. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He had some credibility as being a teamster. He didn't just, you know, drop from the sky. He actually was a truck driver. Mm -hmm. But he was well known in the 1950s for being really like a mafia strong arm man. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an extremely violent guy. He's considered like an exterminator. He's a guy he put to knock off people. Yeah. And in local 560, basically as the local grew, he put in his work, as it were, really with a lot of mob influence to just, he was put on the payroll. Yeah. Much like the Wartman guys wanted to do with Harold Gibbons' local and steadily moved up the offices mm -hmm. until he was the local's president. Yeah. By the time he has a president position in the local and a vice president position in the international through his alliance with Hoffa, mm -hmm. he is a capo regime in the Genovese crime family in New okay. York. Yeah. Did you want to explain that a little bit for our audience? Yeah, people? yeah. I mean, the probably the part of Italian organized crime in the United States that most fits the model that we've inherited that's shown on shows like The Sopranos and movies like the Godfather series, the idea of this very sort of regimented system of territories that are doled out to given families. And then those families have a complex uh, hierarchical structure with a boss, sometimes underboss, mm -hmm. you know, a consigliere, advisor guy, and then capo regimes who run, who, who in turn oversee sets of crews or, or certain parts of territory, that's, you get that the most in New York, yeah. right? One of the problems is people attempt to uh, port that model onto other parts of the country, gangs of other, other, other organized crime groups altogether, and they're not, and they're, they, they don't, they're not, they don't map onto each other. But in New York, things are, like, there, there's, if anything, this borderline, like, courtly uh, element to it. You almost think that they kind of do it because they like having all this rigmarole and ceremony and titles 
right? People love titles. Yeah. But yeah, so so the Genovese were one of the five families of New York. I used to know more lore about them when I was studying this kind of thing. You see, I was a kind the, of... The capital regime is basically, he's a, like a captain. He's not, yes, he's not the boss. He's the underboss. Yeah, the boss. Or, but yeah, he is... Middle management isn't the right way to say it, even though that's technically what he is. It's more like upper middle management. So right. like the head of a department, uh, if you want to use like corporate or even university metaphors, but like an up and come, right, right uh, like somebody with serious stake and seniority in the organization. Not and, a king or a prince, but maybe like a duke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Count. Right, yeah. yeah. And usually they're brought up kind of from below, uh, though it, obviously there's favoritism. And if you're somebody's kid, it probably helps you become yeah. a capo or whatever. Uh, I used to know more mob lore, but not as much as you might think because... I was the kind of person who liked to read books about the mob to see what their organizational structure was like, not because I wanted to hear about all of their all their murders and who what what Johnny Big Toe said to you know Tommy the Tommy the Gun at some point yeah. over dinner. It was funny. Uh, I, I like that stuff too, but it was never the juice for me. Yeah, I'm one mind on that. Yeah. So speaking of organization chart. Mm. Hoffa backed Tony Provenzano's price to the hilt. Mm -hmm. um, he backed him completely, not only to get to the top of the local, but also to get reelected, not only publicly supporting him, but this is pretty surprising to me, sending Harold Gibbons to New Jersey, the local mm -hmm. 688, like, clean socialist, mm -hmm. to New Jersey to convince holdouts that they should back Tony Pro. Mm -hmm. The reason was very simple. Tony Pro was an extremely compromised guy. Yeah. who would be subject to a federal investigation at, like, any given time, uh -huh. but he supported Hoffa's presidency. Yeah. He would direct his votes and the Joint Council 73's votes, right. all of them, to Hoffa. So this is an instance where Hoffa's insistence on personal loyalty and dependability in supporting his power above all else yeah. starts to bite him and the Teamsters in the ass yeah and, and to be clear like unlike say like trump in the modern day like hoffa's loyalty was reciprocal. yes was yes if you backed him like he would scratch back your back you yeah. absolutely would because a, a trump to say you know not i'm not exactly a fan of his but i feel like uh trump would uh dump this provenzano guy as soon as he could i've never met him yeah, I, 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 I think yeah. I've heard the name. People are saying Tony Pro, they have a picture. I have pictures of a lot of people. I've got a lot of things. People, lots of people support me. In fact, I talked to someone who supported me so much the other day. And then starts yeah, out. right, exactly. I mean, do you... So this, this guy would disappear. Right. So this is obviously counterfactual, but do you think there was a point in Hoffa's leadership of the Teamsters when he could have dispensed with Tony Pro and maintain control of the organization. That's an interesting counterfactual, and I actually have thought about that one mm -hmm. a lot. And there's one potential point in 1962, mm -hmm. but it, it seems pretty unlikely to me mm. um, because of how powerful Tony Provenzano was in his local, due to the due to his Genovese crime family right. connections. Yeah before Hoffa ever got in there. And it also makes Tony Provenzano just an extremely dangerous enemy to have. Yes. Which, you know, it's hint, hint for later. So let's talk about why Tony Pro used this position and how. Mm -hmm. Rackets. 
Mm. So Tony pros two main ways of squeezing money from local 560 operations were first giving himself an insane salary and expenses, and second, giving sweetheart kind of sideline deals to trucking firms who paid him personally. Mm. In other words, the union had a good contract going and was at least formally trying to push the same high wage, good working conditions policy that a Hoffa would be in Detroit or a Gibbons would be in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. But in reality, if you paid Tony Provenzano's family personally, he would give you a special deal mm -hmm. and have shit working conditions and shit pass the, and pass the pass the savings on to you. <laughs> yeah. Pass the savings on to your truck. On to a responsible businessman. Yeah. An example of this, though, by, by no means the only one was the Doran case from 1952, which ultimately Tony Provenzano was prosecuted on in 1959. So that took a long time. Just going to read from Stephen Brill on this one. It was a classic plot. The president of the trucking company, Walter Doran, told the jury back that back in 1952, he was having problems with his union drivers. They seemed, for some unknown reason, to be engaged in a work slowdown, mm -hmm. refusing, for example, to park the trucks in the garage in an orderly way that allowed them to be moved freely. Dorn had a series of luncheons with Provenzano, who was the business agent for Local 560, to discuss the problem. At one lunch, he testified, he slipped Provenzano $1,500. At another, Provenzano suggested he hire a certain lawyer to help with his labor problems. He wrote the lawyer's name down on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. In other words, he just slips him an envelope of cash yeah. and, you know, also engages in some trading of favors with another right. lawyer who might have actually been working for the district attorney's office. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Why, why not? Tony Pro obviously stacked his locals' ranks with criminal flunkies, probably supplied by the Genovese family, mm -hmm. as his shop stewards and organizers. Yeah. And they, in turn, promoted numbers rackets, right. petty gambling, uh -huh. and... Most of all, loan sharking among the union's members who were, you know, down on their luck. Right. And probably didn't help that their working conditions were shittier. Their wages were probably lower because of yeah. the bullshit that their union boss was doing behind their back. Yeah. A lot of local 560 people, when they're interviewed, you know, they have like a kind of fatalism about uh, it at this time. Like they're like. Well, was. my wages and benefits, they're like, they're better than if I was a non-union truck right. driver, yeah. but I know I'm getting screwed. Yeah. And I know if I speak up, yeah, so we're going to have the shit kicked out of me. Yeah. In addition, like as a side note, he was doing heroin smuggling off of some of these oh, trucks. French connection style. It's Yeah. But, you know, the mafia, but hey, come on, the mafia wouldn't do that. They, they, you no, know, no, 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 no. or they would just sell it to black people, which is okay, uh, apparently. So uh, the real... Godfather reference. Uh, the thing that Tony Provenzano gets local 560 increasingly into, and it, this is especially the case, a slight preview, when Jimmy Hoffa goes to jail, is labor leasing. Mm -hmm. And labor leasing is where they would connect, basically, mob-owned or controlled companies that employ drivers would rent them to the to these trucking companies or manufacturing companies and so on at below the union wage and for a payment the union wouldn't complain about these labor leasing things because also tony provenzano and his family and so on own the labor leasing firms oh. so behind enemy lines like within the system 
they're already kind of carving out this neoliberal mm. hole. Like a temp agency. Yeah. No, yeah. Theoretically, all these were above the board temp agencies. Right. But in reality, the only reason that they weren't getting like objected to by the union mm-hmm. was because that the union leaders owned the temp agency and were scabbing on their own workers mm-hmm. and kind of building this hole in the union agreements. Yeah. However, this is still, you know, New York and New Jersey. These are still truckers. And even despite the fight that Tony Pro is a mafia man, they raise hell at meetings because they're getting just robbed. Yeah, yeah. And complain in the late 50s attempted to field a reform ticket to uh-huh. take over the union leadership called the Green Ticket. Mm. Their grievances were pretty immediate, despite hauling some of the most expensive cargo out of newer plants and New Jersey chemical companies. They were getting lower pay and benefits than most of their teams or brothers in the same area. And moreover, they could plainly see that Provenzano was just kind of looting the human treasury to pay his salary for himself and his family. He received three salaries oh. mm. uh, as local president, uh, president of Joint Council 73, and vice president of the International. His pay on just his local salary at that time in today's dollars was 193000 Ah, yeah. Well, you gotta, you gotta shout out for the top talent. Wait for how much he pays himself after the election. Okay, I will. So during this election, this really began to show how much of just a dictatorship Local 560 is. Uh, Walter Glockner, one dissident, was shot three times in the back outside his house after saying, I'm going to fight Tony Pro until they put me in a pine box. And then they did. They did. Uh, George Phillips uh, tried to lead the reform ticket. He was beaten severely in 960 by people saying pretty directly, get off the ticket, get off the ticket. Mm-hmm. And he was temporarily blinded and his nose broken and put in the hospital for three weeks. Mm-hmm. 1962, an election's coming around again. They were feeling the green ticket again. In 1961, he's attacked by men with claw hammers, mm-hmm. um, who fortunately for him got scared off by people from a nearby junkyard. And only spent two weeks in the hospital. Oh. The junkyard gang came out and helped. Yeah. The junkyard boys. That's the kind of thing that happens back then. <laughs> no longer. We Think about what we lost. I know. Really, uh, really short staff at junkyards. Yeah, right. you, you need to have junkyard gigs on hand. Yeah, there need to be folks just hanging out of the junkyard. People, we, com- need, to, we need to fund. Junk- yeah, people junkyard. complain about like, oh, they defunded the police. The police aren't patrolling anymore. They're under staff. Okay, what about junkyard? Yeah, gigs? what about yeah? Okay, they're the ones to stop the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where were the police when this guy was attacked with mm-hmm, bombers? Mm-hmm. Uh, at green ticket meetings, shotgun blasts were fired at the home. And a bomb was set off at Phillips's headquarters. So this was already a pretty contested election, but it didn't scare the green ticket people off. However, during the election, Tony Provenzano brought out the big guns and uh, he guessed how you would vote for a local 560s president, vice president, so on at the time. Uh, uh, how, how much, what the vote was? Yeah, well, what, what the vote was like. Where would you go? How uh, would you cast your ballot? And so on. Uh, where would you go? Uh, you would go I think to... like the Union Hall, Yeah, right? the Union Hall. Or like, like other Union Halls? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would drive your truck up to the Union Hall. Wrong. You'd go to a mobbed-up restaurant in Hoboken. Oh, nice. Yeah, classic. So Harold Konigsberg, a known extortionist and murderer. Ooh owned a restaurant in Hoboken that was used as the only polling station for uh, Tony Provenzano. When people arrived, because literally, these, honestly, these guys are so fucking tough. Yeah. It's not just a physical thing. It's just a, a physical, a like a bravery yeah. thing, you yeah. know? 
But like you still had people from local 560 who were like, I can't fucking stand 24 yeah, yeah. and drive to a mafia restaurant mm. in Hoboken, mm. where when they arrived, a mob of Tony Pro's goons would expect their car to see if they recognize them as green ticket people. Uh-huh. And then they would rock the cars, throw things at them, and when they got out of the car, would shove a manhandle them. So there's just like a standing riot outside of this restaurant. Right. During the election. And like I, 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 now I'm trying to think about like where it would I mean Hoboken, it's a I'm pretty sure it's like a crowded, like a dense urban yeah. area. So people could probably see like driving by. Yeah, like oh, and there's just a mob of mafia. Groups. Yeah, there's just a, a moderate riot happening for most of the day, where large men are are assaulting cars. This is normal. This is fine. This we is do normal. This. I mean, it is New Jersey. But yeah, it is New Jersey. Soon after uh, winning this rigged election, and honestly, he only they they did not have a full turnout. It's 4,500 voters. He only won by like just below 500 votes. Yeah, because like once you run the gauntlet, if it's a secret ballot, then. Soon after winning this uh, rigged election, barely, in 1963, Stephen Brill states that Tony Provenzano had an above-board paid salary from the union of $113,000. Okay, that's on top of the $193,000? Or is that... So that's that's $193,000 in today's dollars. In today's dollars, his new combined salary after winning this election is over a million (laughs) dollars. $1,080,700 in today's money. It made him the highest paid union official in the entire world. Mm. Including, you know, the Soviet Union? Including the Soviet Union, including Jimmy Hoffa. Right, yeah. Now, did did RFK go after him? Actually, he did. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. But he took the fifth. Uh, That million-dollar salary, uh, which also made him higher paid than the president, Um, of the United States of the United States uh, didn't even count his other business interests like you know labor leasing companies drug dealing drug dealing so I'd like to conclude this episode by talking about the real forerunner of Papa's murder Mm. abduction and murder and that is the murder of Tony Three Fingers Castellito Castellito was the treasurer of Local 560 and a former Tony Pro loyalist mm-hmm. who in 1961 was kind of thinking about and talking about breaking ranks and running with the green ticket, the reform <laughs> ticket, because he could see where the wind was blowing. Mm-hmm. The parallels to Hoffa's abduction and murder are pretty impossible to ignore, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the immediate aftermath. It just sounds the same even though it's described yeah so i found a september 10th 1962 edition of the new jersey journal that says you know much like how they would talk about hoffa's disappearance later the disappearance of 50 year old official of the teamsters local 560 in union city has remained a mystery Mm. to police his family and union members since june 8th 1961 he seems to have vanished from the face of the earth Hmm. Funny how people do that sometimes. Yeah, especially around Tony Provenzano. Yeah. In 1967, the New Jersey police and FBI uncovered a body-filled mob murder grave in mm. the basement of a South Jersey home mm. where they were looking kind of ineffectually for Castellito's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, pro- in quote, Provenzano's murder trial focused on the question that has long intrigued authorities. 
What is it about an important union post that warrants murder? Mm, what about what? What indeed? What indeed? So we actually do know what happened to Three Fingers Castellito. Mm. And it's less obscure than what happened to Hoffa. Mm -hmm. And that is because in 1978, after all the investigation and pressure, after Hoffa's own abduction and murder case, enough pressure was put on associates of Tony Provenzano that the case finally broke and a man named Salvatore Big Sal Sino rolled on Provenzano and turned state's evidence. Mm. Sino, along with another corroborating witness, actually several corroborating witnesses, put together a pretty chilling story. Mm. Seeing that Castellito was running ahead of him and could potentially take control of New Jersey Local 560, Tony Provenzano gathered two known heavies, Harold Konigsberg and Salvatore Buglio. Harold Konigsberg, the restaurateur. Yes, famous restaurateur. Yeah, you gotta figure the, uh, you gotta wonder what's in that meat sauce. Yeah. Ooh. He gave them a temporary office at Local 560 to literally plan the murder. Hmm. Konigsberg at that time was age 36, and he was paid $15,000, under $46,000 today's money, while Bergoglio, age 31, was offered a salary and position as an organizer, this is a no-show salary, hmm. with Local 560 if he would assist with murder. This was not a, like, broke-ass, like, budget yeah, this was yeah. highly professional. The plan was simple, though. Sal Sino, who was brought in on this plot, spoke to Castellito, the treasurer who's challenging Tony Pro, mm -hmm. and he says that he was in danger from the law and he needed a place to stay. Could he please stay at Castellito's place in Kerhonkson, New York? Mm -hmm. Basically, an upstate New York vacation home. Yeah. The killers, Bergoglio and Konigsberg, like to case this house, this vacation home, multiple times. And, pro and likely made a surreptitious entry after confirming that Castellito was on his way. Mm -hmm. They very carefully and expertly broke into the house. Mm -hmm. Sino arranged a meeting time to arrive at the vacation home, which is an out-of-the-way place in the woods and thereby far from any witnesses. Mm -hmm. The pretext of a place to lay low ensured that there wouldn't be other witnesses there. Mm -hmm. On June 8, 1961, Castellito went to a union meeting at Local 560 and then grabbed a coffee at a restaurant across the street. Well, Mary's Texas Wiener. I know Jersey <laughs> people know exactly what Texas Wiener is. Mm. And pretty good. Oh, oh. Did you go to that place? No, no, I checked. I went to a different Texas Wiener place. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Castellito arrived at the vacation home, entered the door, and was knocked with a blackjack, probably to stun him. Salvatore Berguglio, assisted by Sino, the kind of the bait person, then strangled Castellito with a rope carrot. Konigsberg and Berguglio then took Castellito's now dead body and put it in the trunk of their blue Chevrolet and attempted to dispose of it in a forest near Perkipsey, New York, but were spotted by a farmer who asked, what are they doing here? Mm -hmm. They responded, checking for real estate. Mm -hmm. uh, allegedly, they then transported it back to New Jersey where the body was either buried or destroyed. Now, Provenzano, kind of the Duke of Local 560, however, arranged to have a absolutely rock solid alibi simultaneous with the murder. He was thousands of miles away with dozens of witnesses. He was getting married to his uh, second wife. Mm -hmm. So the formula for Hoffa's eventual abduction and murder is here in its plain elements. You have a pretextual meeting mm -hmm. without witnesses, an arranged ironclad alibi, which is true. It's not mm -hmm. just faked up with witnesses. Yeah. The use of 
kind of contained, less intrusive weapon so as to not create a second crime scene. Yeah. No traces, no blood, no hair, <laughs> no gunshots, no right. casings, nothing like that. And the disappearance of the body. Right. The disposal of the body never be found. In the coming years prior to Hoffa's own disappearance, as investigations over local 560s use of funds would result in two more inconvenient associates of Tony Provenzano disappearing. On July 1st, 1971, Stephen Angelo disappeared. And on December 8th, 1972, Armand Fagno. Fagno? Fagno? How's it spelled? F A U G N O. Yeah, Fagno. Fagno. Left his home in Inglewood, New Jersey, never to be seen again. But the fate of Fauno's body is less of a mystery. As an informant recounted, his body was put through a tree shredder, which grounded the chunks before the remains were dumped into the refuse of the garden. The truth is, I think Provenzano was ahead of his time, like Harold Gibbons as well. The labor leasing black market trucking he was operating was an infection that would spread throughout the trucking industry with deregulation after Hoffman's demise. Breaking the terms of the contract will become normal, not done by mafia men, but by the taskmasters of public trucking companies. Mm -hmm. The debt he had trapped men into with loan sharking to force them into doing these labor leasing things. Well, I didn't even, I didn't, did oh, we shit. even, did we, did even we not check? cover that? No. One of Tony Provenzano's rackets. Yeah. After these guys would be out, you know, hundreds to thousands of dollars to his loan sharks. Yeah who were on the union payroll, uh -huh. was he would say, don't worry, there's a perfect opportunity to pay off your debt. You're going to work for this truck company. Mm. Not at a union wage, but at no wage, because the truck company is just going to directly pay my agencies. Your debt. Your debt, which will go to pay for your loan shark. So he became a slaver. Yes, he literally enslaved truckers. That, oh, yeah. Fuck. That's bad. Don't do not do that. No. We, we fought a war about that. No. Oh, that's, that just feels really sinister. I mean, it is sinister. It just makes me, makes me sad and upset. Yeah, don't say too much, though. We don't want you going through the tree shredder. Yeah, you know, as, as, long, as, they, as long as they knock me out first. <laughs> I won't have any more opinions. Going back to, like, my little animation, I guess. Yeah. If you want to bear with me. Yes. The debt he had trapped men into loan sharking wouldn't be done by Genovese enforcers, but by banks and credit card companies. Mm -hmm. The world that could only take shape after the power of the union, whether run by a Gibbons or a Hoffa, mm -hmm. was cut down. Yeah, so it all kind of comes full circle. So on that happy note, uh, right. next time we're going to talk about Hoffa's legal cases and mm -hmm. how he came to lose power in the teamsters in the first place mm -hmm. before trying to... See you next time, listeners. Bye-bye. It's worth also saying that, you know, he, by the 1960s, Tony Provenzano is also paying tribute to Carmine Galanti, mm -hmm. who is rising to become the boss of all bosses, yeah. having in the 30s, if you paid attention to our old episode, killed, killed Carlo Trasca. How do I know that name and you don't? You're See, I told you guy. I'm going stupid. Yeah, we're both going stupid, guys. Does this become a stupid podcast? Uh you're warned. Just keep keep paying us money though.